sometimes people think the God of the Old Testament is a vengeful, angry God, and the God of the New Testament is a loving God. There's nothing like that in the Bible. Uh, there's nothing sentimental about God's love. There's nothing weak about God's love. God's love is strong and, and powerful. And uh, so we come tonight uh, to chapter 3. Uh, I know it's Easter Sunday, and we're celebrating the Lord's Supper. Uh, but it's difficult to separate the cross from the empty tomb. We don't want to do that, and this chapter actually is very much on the theme of the cross and what Jesus accomplished on Good Friday. So let's have a look at this together. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce calls this chapter the greatest chapter in the Bible. Preachers are always saying things like that, exaggerating. There's no more important verse in the whole Bible, Martin Lloyd-Jones used to say every time he took up a text. Uh, and he, and I, I'm sure he really believed that as well, because <laughs> every part of the Bible is important, isn't it? Uh, but he says this is the greatest chapter in the Bible because it tells us the greatest story ever told. It's the story of God's tough love for unfaithful people like ourselves, people who are hell-bent on destroying ourselves. So I just wanted you to see three things tonight in this, this great little chapter. Um, first of all, I want you to see our plight as human beings, and then the price that is paid to redeem us, uh, the cost of, of bringing us back. And then I want, to see you, I want you to see here as well what we've seen in the, all, the other two chapters, uh, a promise and a prophecy. So three things, our plight as human beings, the price, the cost to, to bring us back, and then a promise. First of all then, our plight. You notice how the chapter opens there, verse 1, the Lord said to me, go show your love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Notice what it says, it doesn't say, Go and rebuke her. It doesn't say go and take your revenge on her. It doesn't even say go and restore her. What does it say? It says go and love her again. Mark Twain, in his book, A Yankee at the Court of King Arthur, uh, I don't know if you know that story, but he makes, in that little book, he makes the king go amongst his people in disguise in order to understand them. And... Uh, the king doesn't really know how to behave amongst the commoners. Uh, and uh, he addresses one of his people as varlet. I don't know what our contemporary equivalent of that might be. It might be vermin or feral. And um, the Yankee tells the king, you mustn't speak to people like that. We're all brothers. And, and the king says, brother, to dirt like that? It's a very human reaction, isn't it? God says to Hosea, go and love this woman again. What, this woman? This woman who's broken his heart? This promiscuous woman? This woman who's been unfaithful to him? This woman who's ruined his reputation? Dirt like that? Yes. Love to the loveless shown that we might lovely be. That's the gospel, isn't it? You see, that's what should surprise us in the Bible. Uh, hell shouldn't surprise us because that's only what we deserve. That's what our sins deserve. It's grace that should surprise us. And, and God reveals himself here in this story of Hosea and Gomer, not as a vengeful God, but a God of grace. God of the second chance. A God who doesn't desire the death of the wicked, but that they might repent and return to him. God welcomes us back and loves us again. That's the message of this chapter. 
You see, she's an adulteress. She's been sleeping around. We've read that in the first two chapters. You can read it for yourselves, if you like, when you go home. Uh, but here in chapter 3, it just goes from bad to worse. She's back on the streets now, discarded by all her lovers. She's destitute and abandoned. She's hell-bent on destroying herself. She just can't help herself. And God says to Hosea, go and love her again. See, what she doesn't know is that Hosea has never stopped loving her. All this time when she's been so unfaithful to him, he's been actually secretly caring for her. You can see that in chapter 2 and verse 8. He's been financially providing for her. She didn't know, he says, it says there in verse 8 of chapter 2, she didn't know that it was I all along who wined and dined and adorned her. I was the one who dressed her up in the big city fashions and jewelry that she wasted on wild Baal orgies. Do you see? Jose has been paying the bills behind the scenes without her ever knowing it. There's an old hymn we used to sing in, when I was a pastor in London. It would be at a really old hymn book. The, the founding pastor actually wrote most of the hymns himself, and most of them were doggerel, really, really bad poetry. But there were one or two really good hymns in there. And this is one of the verses we used to sing. Pre listen to the theology in this. Preserved in Jesus, when my feet made haste to hell. And there I would have been, but he does all things well. That's her story. And that's our story too, isn't it? Even, think about it. Think back on, back on your pre-conversion days. Think back on your long life, whether you were born into a Christian home or not. Isn't that true? Before I knew him, long before I ever became a Christian, when I was going my own sweet way, in rebellion against him, trampling on his heart, even then the blood was circling in my veins and oxygen was being pumped into my lungs, preserved in Jesus. Even when my feet made haste to hell, even I, in, when I was in headlong rebellion against him, he was preserving me, keeping me alive, giving me opportunities. Isn't that what Paul says to the Galatians, remember? He talks about himself as having been separated from his mother's womb. I don't know how old Paul was when he, when he met Christ on the Damascus Road, probably in his 30s, maybe his mid-30s. And all the time before that, he was preserved in Jesus. Even when he was in his mother's womb before he came into this world, he says he was separated by God for this great task that he now has to be an apostle to the Gentiles. The theologians call this prevenient grace, I think. Even when he was a persecutor of the church, God was shaping him, shaping his character preparing him for his life's ministry. Even when he was a murderer of Christians, not that God is in any way uh, responsible for, for the evil that Paul did, but even he can bring good out of evil, can't he? He can make the wrath of men to please him. And, and even when Saul was a persecutor of the church and a murderer of Christians, he was being preserved in Jesus. When his feet made haste to hell. Can't you look back on your own life? And see the same thing? It's something to thank God for, isn't it? God's providence. We can look back now and we can see it. So God says to Hosea, go show your love to your wife again. Though she's loved by another man and is an adulteress, love her as the Lord loves the Israelite. And that's the key. That's the clue, you see, to, the, to what's going on here. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. This isn't just the story of Hosea and Gomer. There are two stories here. This is a story of God and his people. 
go, show your love to her again. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, even though they turn to other gods and love hot cross buns, <laughs> sacred raisin cakes. <laughs> Isn't that what hot cross buns are? <laughs> We're not sure what these sacred raisin cakes are. They're probably offerings to uh, Canaanite gods. I mean, how can you love people who prefer hot cross buns to Christ? How can you love people who prefer raisin cakes to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? How can you love people who, who worship created things rather than the Creator? But we do, don't we? That's exactly what we do. It's just what we're like. We chase after trivialities. We give our hearts to next to nothing. Tolstoy, in his novel Anna Karenina, describes the, the relationship between Anna and her lover Vronsky like this. He soon felt that the fulfillment of his desires gave him only one grain of the mountain of happiness that he had expected. This fulfillment showed him the eternal error men make in imagining that their happiness depends on the realization of their desires. We make many mistakes in life, don't we? Uh, but according to uh, uh, Tolstoy, this is the eternal error. This is the big one. It will ruin you forever. C.S. Lewis captures it brilliantly in, in, in the Screwtape letters, you know, when uh, Uncle Screwtape is giving advice to his young nephew Wormwood in how to trap humans. He said, this is the way to destroy the human race, he says, an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. That's the, that's, that's the story of the raisin cakes, the sacred raisin cakes. That's the nature of sin, an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. That's the nature of sin. Sin is an addiction, like any addiction, which will destroy you, which will bring you to the grave, which will bring you down to hell, unless you're rescued from it. That, that's, that's the plight that Gomer has found herself in. That's the story of, of Gomer. She's a sex addict. At first it was exciting and, and pleasurable, and, but then she lost her looks and her lovers and she's dumped and discarded and now nobody wants her. Her lovers are now her pimps, selling her to whoever is willing to pay for her. That's what happens. That's where sin leads, unless we're saved from it. That is the plight of the human race. It's a downward spiral of guilt and shame which we just can't break free from in our own strength. But it gets worse before it gets better. Notice this is the second point. There's a price to pay. Just look at verse 2. So I bought her. <laughs> so where is she now then, if she has to be bought? Well, obviously, she's in the slave market. That's where she's ended up. So I bought her, says Hosea, for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and lethic of barley. I mean, altogether, that adds up to about 30 shekels, I'm told. That's the price that you would pay for a slave in the slave market. And that's where she is in this chapter. She's up for sale. She's uh, stripped naked so that her potential buyers can see what they're getting. See, it doesn't get any more sordid than this. And they, they begin bidding for her body. And at the depths of her degradation, at the bottom of her life, when she must have felt so worthless... And, and so ashamed, she hears a familiar voice. She's in the slave market. They're bidding for her. 
Someone says, 10 shekels, 3 bushels of barley. Another voice, 14 shekels, 6 bushels of barley. And then she hears the voice of Hosea, her husband. 15 shekels, 9 bushels of barley. See, in the Old Testament, when a wife behaved the way that Gomer has behaved, bringing such shame on her family, divorce was mandatory. Even death. We've seen it in some of these dreadful scenes in some of these Muslim countries around the world where an adult, a woman, it's always a woman, isn't it? never the man, a woman found in adultery is stoned to death. That's, that's the kind of culture that we're talking about here. But what does Hosea do? Does he divorce her? Does he, he expose her to the community? Does he demand the death penalty? What does he do? what it says he buys her back and he brings her home look at verse 3 then I told her you're to live with me many days you must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man and I'll behave the same way towards you what does he do he brings her back into the family home just just think how costly that would be not just financially but culturally and socially and of course emotionally what will it take to repair this relationship? You know, he's been betrayed, he's been humiliated, his heart has been torn to shreds. It's not easy just to forgive and forget, is it? You can't just kiss and make up after that, can you? What's he going to do with all that pent-up pain and anger inside of him? It's not just going to go away. Either he's going to take it out on her, or he must bear the pain and the shame himself. Either she must take it, or he must bear it. And he does. He absorbs it into himself. He, he could have made her pay and pour out his righteous indignation upon her, give her a really hard time for the rest of her life. Let her have it. She deserves it. But instead, he absorbs it himself. You see, my friends, there's always a price to pay when you love someone in this way isn't there there's always a price to pay there's always a cost involved to love anyone with problems always involves a substitutionary sacrifice doesn't it just think about it for a moment let's say you've got a friend who's going through a horrible time and she's lonely and you know if you go to see her there goes your evening so it's uh, it's her or you you can have your evening in front of the telly and keep yourself emotionally intact if that can happen in front of the telly. You can have your evening and keep yourself emotionally intact while she suffers alone. Or you can sacrifice your evening, sacrifice it, in order to bring comfort and friendship to your friend. Do you see what I'm saying? Any act of love towards a needy person involves substitutionary sacrifice, doesn't it? There's a cost involved in loving people. There always is. There's always a price to pay. And there's a price to pay for us. There's a cost involved in our redemption. Sometimes I think we just take it for granted. Like, you know, when you go, you go for a coffee nowadays and uh, uh, you don't even have to put your hand in your pocket to get out some loose change. You just tap your phone against the PayPass machine, don't you? And you, you don't even realize you've paid for it. You, you, you pay painlessly without even thinking about it. Isn't that right? And sometimes I think uh, we preach the cross like that. 
as if it was some kind of financial transaction that Jesus went through to set us free. Now, my friends, it cost him. It cost him emotionally, psychologically, physically. There's a price to pay for our sin, and Jesus paid it all. There's a cost involved, and he took it upon himself. All the shame and guilt of our sin. Someone has said, God didn't kill Abraham for lying about his wife. He didn't execute Lot for drunkenness and incest with his daughters. He didn't have David and Bathsheba stoned for their adultery. No. God put those stones aside until the day when he would hurl them at someone else. One of the most shocking verses in the whole Bible. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 10. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. The punishment that brought us peace was laid upon him. I remember when I was in London as a pastor, hearing the testimony of a guy called V.J. Menon. He was a, a guy, he worked in Lloyd's in London, in the city. He was a Hindu. And uh, in those days, this was back in the um, 80s when I was in London, uh, they still had lunch hours in the city, and there was a massive uh, lunch hour service at St. Helens in Bishopsgate, uh, where Dick Lucas was the pastor. And uh, they would get about 1,000 men on two two mid mid mornings uh, two mid uh, midweek days coming out of the, the banks and the, the offices around in the city there and vj came out he just wanted some lunch and he got out and he got got into this crowd and he couldn't get out of it he just followed them and ended up in this medieval church in the center of the city of london and he couldn't get out he was hemmed in by hundreds and thousands of other men and he had to listen to a 25 minute talk from dick lucas <laughs> And this is, he's written about it himself. This is what he says. He says, I wanted to belong to God so much that in my heart, I was willing to pay any price. This is what it actually cost me. Imagine I came to your house with a kidney machine to sell when you're on the point of dying through kidney failure. And you ask me how much it costs. Imagine that, if, you know. And, and if I were to say, well... I'll give the kidney machine to you in exchange for all that rubbish you got piled up in your backyard. <laughs> Would you consider that too great a price to pay? Wouldn't you be only too willing to pay any price for that machine? And VJ Menon says, the cost I, this is what he understood that day in that church, the cost I had to pay Jesus was the rubbish in my life. My sin, my selfishness, all that made me unhappy and made my life a misery. He said, I, I, could have, I could have cherished my rubbish and said no to him like so many people do. But that thought never even crossed my mind. That's it, isn't it? You and I have nothing to contribute to our salvation except the rubbish we need clearing out of our lives. Isn't that right? And as Paul reminds us in Romans, it's, it's while we were in that condition Rubbish piled up all over us. While we were sinners, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we, not while we'd cleaned ourselves up and got our act together, but while we were yet sinners, while we were still sinners, it says in Romans 5. Just like Gomer, hopeless and helpless, chasing after her lovers. Just like Israel, running after Canaanite gods, addicted to them. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died for us. 
the one for whom it's not robbery to claim equality with God. He took upon himself the form of a servant and was obedient unto death, even death on a cross, the most shameful, painful death. Sometimes, you know, uh, on Good Friday, in lots of churches, we sing that well-known hymn. There's a green hill far away outside a city wall where our dear Lord was crucified, who died to save us all. The lady who wrote those words was from the Emerald Isle. She was from Ireland, where everything is green because it never stops raining in Ireland. But my friends, let me tell you, there was no green hill outside Jerusalem. It was a rubbish tip. Golgotha was the place of the skull. The place outside the city where all the rubbish was dumped. Gehenna, the refuse dump where the city's rubbish was burned. And that's, that's where Jesus died and that's how Jesus died. Outside the city wall is so much sin-cursed refuse. Remember what it says? Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. I mean, we need to see the cross that way. We've, we've sanitized it, haven't we? We've made it an item of jewelry. We decorate our churches with it, but it is the acme of degradation and shame, and Jesus went there. The only one who didn't need to go there went there, and he went there for you and for me. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place, condemned, he stood. He who knew no sin was made sin for us. All the rubbish in our lives was dumped on him. That's the price that he pays to redeem us. Now, I can hear some of you saying, well, where is that in the text? Where does, that, where does it say that God himself comes into the marketplace to redeem his people? Uh, to pay the price, to bring them home. Where is Jesus in this story? Where's the cross? Well, look at verses 4 and 5. There's a prophecy here, isn't there? There's a promise. Do you see what it says in verse 4? Just look at these words carefully. The Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod, ephod or household gods. So we're pressing the fast forward button here. Uh, the Israelites are going to live like this for many years. But afterwards, there's an afterwards. Afterwards, the Israelites will return. They're going to be scattered to the four corners of the earth, but there's going to be an afterwards when they will return and seek the Lord their God, listen, and David their king. <laughs> David's been dead for years. This is way after David's time. And yet it says they'll return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they will, look what it says, they will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. In other words, there's going to be a time when, when Israel is in the wilderness far away, but eventually, they're going to come back, eventually the children of Israel will return to David their king. But David's dead and gone long ago. So there must be another David. There must be a descendant of David. There must be great David's greater son, Jesus. And in the New Testament, there he is. You see him, don't you? In the New Testament, he comes riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, on the back of Zechariah's donkey, and, and, and the crowds uh, go wild, waving their palm branches and crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna to the son of David. 
And you remember how John the Baptist introduces him in John chapter 3. He says, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. You know, the, the, um, the media were there with their microphones, pushing them into John's face. Are, are you the Messiah? Tell us. You know, and John says, I'm not the Messiah. The one who comes after me is greater than I am. He must increase. I must decrease. I'm not the Messiah. I'm just the best man. He's the bridegroom. That's what he says there in John chapter 3. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him, and he's full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it's now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. I'm only the best man, says John. Jesus is the bridegroom who has come into the world to bring back his runaway bride and to restore her to himself. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her. And for her sake, he died. So what does that mean? Just finally, it, it, means, it means that your life doesn't belong to you. Never did. You've been bought with a price. You've been redeemed, not with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus. There's, there's an urban legend about Winston Churchill. I wish this story was true, but it's not. According to the story, when he was a boy, he almost drowned, and his life was saved by a gardener. Years later, when he was prime minister, again, he nearly died of pneumonia. But his life was saved by penicillin. And the man who discovered penicillin, of course, was Sir Alexander Fleming. And according to the myth, he just happened to be the son of the gardener who had saved Churchill's life as a boy. Now, unfortunately, that story isn't true. <laughs> it's an urban myth. I checked it out. But the point, the point stands. And the point is that you and I owe our lives not once or even twice, but three times to the same person. Did you realize that? You owe your very existence, not once or twice, but three times, to the same person. Jesus. He made you. By him all things were made. Without him was not anything made that was made. That includes you. He is the word by which the world was made, and that word was made flesh and dwelt among us so that he could bleed and die for our sins. He, he made us for himself. And when we ran away from him in our sin and rebellion into the arms of other gods, he came and he sought us and he bought us with his own blood and brought us back to himself. So you're his by creation, you're his by redemption. And he's given us his Holy Spirit to live in us. The Spirit of Jesus lives in you if you're a Christian. That's what a Christian is. A Christian is someone who's trusted in Jesus and Jesus has come to live in you by his Spirit. So you're, you're not your own, are you? You're triply not your own. He made you. He redeemed you. He indwells you. He possesses you. Don't you know that your bodies are... Temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God. You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, and this isn't an optional extra, therefore, honor God with your bodies in your bodily existence. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for what you've done for us in coming from heaven to earth, entering this sin-cursed world, taking upon yourself a fully authentic human existence, 
suffering and dying on a cross in order to rescue us and restore us and give us a future and a hope. Lord, there is nothing more important than this, that Jesus died, that he rose again, and that he's coming back. Help us, Lord, to always keep these truths at the forefront of our minds as we go out into the world and into the week ahead. We ask it in his name. Amen.